welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Jared Bias is joining the tent today. Jared is the co-host of the popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People, and the co-author of the book Genesis for Normal People, both produced alongside Pete Enns. Jared is a former teaching pastor and a professor of philosophy and biblical studies, and is the author of the most recent book, Love Matters More, available where you get your books. We actually had Pete and Jared on the podcast a few months ago, talking about the Bible for normal people and the ins and outs of dealing with evangelical and other conservative Christian outfits when you talk about the Bible. But that's not what I had Jared on for today. Jared and I actually began a friendship quite a while ago, a couple of years ago now, on our shared love of Kierkegaard and on the teaching style and approach that we like to take when it comes to the Bible and other assorted Christian cultural studies. So what you've got here is not Jared trying to sell his book or promote his podcast, but in fact just two theologians having a good old chat about what it is that makes them tick. I really enjoyed talking with Jared. He's very gentle and wise and kind, and he also pushes back on some of the things that I say and asks some really pointed questions, which I was very happy to have. I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. on some sort of uh book tour right now or what's i yeah i was over the fall that finished up in uh mid to late november so it's been two or three weeks now but yep Mm -hmm. wow what's remind me of the name of the book it's called love matters more how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like jesus yeah oh brilliant brilliant it's funny because i'd love to talk about that book that's not you know you and i were ages ago wanted to talk about kierkegaard so yeah well i mean i lean i you know kierkegaard is not absent from uh from the book for sure so oh well in that case i'd love to talk about that great i mean this is just to me this is something that i've wanted to just talk with you for ages about anyway no yeah well i mean i'm talking to the person who you know sent me the literally the book on kierkegaard and i have you to thank for getting a kierkegaard tote bag even oh did you get that (laughs) that's fun so you were on the list of like uh because they always ask for like who would be interested what's what's the word they use uh, in- uh i don't know I, I i don't know what the list is i that was the most uncomfortable part of writing a book for me for sure so it's the worst and also getting people to write little blurbs for you uh-huh. on the back. exactly I yeah hate that and you use i used all my goodwill like getting my blurbs for my first book and so i'm like now what do i do i don't know <laughs> now i say do you do you write blurbs for anybody who asks or are you what's, what's uh it depends i'm i'm a little picky just time wise i don't have all the time in the world i wish i did but yeah. i do sometimes yeah. yeah who's the who's who's your um who's your best blurb who's your career highlight for our for one of book my books yeah uh we had uh walter brueggemann oh yeah uh endorsed genesis for normal people and that was a highlight for me it was sort of one of those moments of like what walter brueggemann knows who i am and he endorsed my book <laughs> So that I was saw Walter Bergerman walking down the street once in San Antonio, and I, I was so tempted. I was driving, but I was like, I want to stop and get out and talk to the guy. But then I thought I'd just scare him because that would just be some weird fanboy stopping him on the street. But <laughs> Do you know um, Jack Caputo? I've No, I don't know him personally. I've been in rooms where he's been talking. but Yeah, so I, I have just a fun, funny story about him. I was at a conference with him, and he was like the keynote. And I was speaking in like a whatever, you know, not a keynote. And I got there before everybody. And there's, you know, John Caputo. And I love, I love his work and, and everything. And uh, he's kind of walking around. And then I overhear that he needs to go have lunch. And so I say, I'll take you to lunch. And he said, oh, that would be great. Well, he, little did he know, I didn't have a car. I had flown into San Diego. It was in San Diego. And, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. So I just said, yeah, I'll take you to lunch. And then he's like, let me go get my stuff. And then I thought, oh, crap, I got to figure out how to get a car in about two minutes. 
So I went up to the conference organizer and I was like, hey, Caputo wants to go to lunch. I was, I volunteered to take him, but I don't have a car. Can I use your car? And he was like super flustered because he was like, who is this guy? And why is he taking Caputo? And why does he want my car? But he gave it to me. And so I took his car no and way. I took Caputo to lunch. We had Subway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got to have a one-on-one for, you know, 45 minutes and pick his brain. That is fun. Now, I, was, I managed to get Rowan Williams and Stanley Howas to write little blurbs for my Kierkegaard. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm, that, yeah, I mean, it was a good book. It was a good I mean, book. And... Stanley doesn't write it. His, his, um, his, <laughs> his research assistants write them. But... That was good. That's but good. I don't mind. I got his name on there. And, and it, was to, it was a blurb for Stephanie instead of yeah exactly uh, for steven but <laughs> you know that was front shed yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh now now when people ask me i mean i don't get asked that much but when people ask me i'm i try to do it as much as i can just because i know i just know how appalling it is to ask other people right right yeah yeah but i'm not inundated i'm not a i'm not a, a theology celebrity like you jared so there you go how's the reception been for for love matters more uh, i think it's been good i mean i wanted to write a good book and you know, so far so good. I think it's a good. I think it's a good book. I think it's a helpful book based on what people have been telling me in reviews and and all of that. And um and yeah, I did this tour and I did a workshop um along with it on how yeah. to how to disagree with people that you love, and so that went well too. Just practical tips and got to hear lots of stories, which were sad but you know hopefully redemptive in the end. Did this so. did this come out of the you know Trumpageddon or were, was this something in the works before? No, this actually came from, I actually started working on this book many years ago. Okay. It was a totally different book about truth. Okay. And it came out of uh, this class that I used to teach when I was a pastor called Four Skeptics Only, where we didn't let Christians in the class. It was only for non-Christians. It was a mega church. So it was like, you know, 3,500 people. And they, they often would go as families because it was a social thing, a family thing. And maybe right. one or one spouse, like, it's good for my kids to be there, but I don't believe any of this stuff. So we wanted to create like a safe space for non-believing spouses okay. um, called For Skeptics Only. And in our conversations in that class, you know, my goal in the class was to make sure that they could voice their questions and doubts and not get struck dead. Um, and so I yes. joke in the book that, you know, mission accomplished, I had zero strike downs in all of my classes, but that's really, you know, out of those conversations we were having is, is really what the, the genesis of the book. And how do you, how do you disagree well without, what, what's the subtitle? How fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus. Yes. Being mm. right is not one of the fruits of the spirit, is it? No. And this is, I mean, not to, not to shoehorn Kierkegaard in here, but you know, it's really the, the whole point of the book is that modern Western Christianity operates at the, at the register of intellectualism. It's about, it's about formulating right thoughts. And sort of, of course, Kierkegaard fits right in there about, no, this is about excess, the existence of your life. Um, and how truth do we, how do we yeah. write truth is subjectivity? How do we turn inward toward a life of love in, in not just uh, inward in the like solipsistic sense, but just in the owning the responsibility for your own life and then living it out in, in actions, behavior, and in existence and how that might matter more, actually, even biblically, it might matter more. Like this idea of getting beliefs right is actually quite foreign to the Bible. And so that's basically what I tried to point out. Have you, have you read Alan Crider? Have you ever read The Patient Ferment? No. Mm -mm. Oh man, I'm reading... I'm reading the patient ferment of the early church right now. And this guy, Alan Crider, he, he's, he was, he's, he's died now, but he was a Mennonite and a Baptist scholar. And he was actually, he was actually, I, he was one of my lecturers, you know, at university, but university is wasted on young people. So I had like Alan Crider is my first term as a first year undergraduate in theology. And I had no clue who I was. You know, I probably skipped half of his lectures. I probably didn't pay any attention to, I don't remember a word he said. And now I realize Alan Crider is like the best Anabaptist, you know, historian and theologian that we've ever had. And he wrote this book called The Patient Ferment, which is he's looking at the early churches turning patience into a virtue, whereas be before the Romans considered it a vice. And just his idea is that it's actually gently waiting, which led to the the healthy growth of the early church and that things go wrong when Christians get impatient. 
when they start to it's rush. It's a the very person. Anabaptist book. That may be yeah. the most Anabaptist book I've ever heard of. And it's yeah. but it's really interesting because he's just going straight into like the earliest church and he's saying, look, early church, um, they didn't have missionaries. They their instructions to even their wandering prophets are things like, don't don't make a, a mess, don't don't make a fuss, don't draw attention to yourself. There's no instructions at all about how to how to evangelize to Gentiles. It's all about taking care of the body itself. Um, even the apologetics of the early church was all kind of inward focused, and 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 the apolog even the apologetics like Justin Martyr or whatever. He's he's not even really talking about clever answers to complicated questions. He's just saying, look at our lives. Look how we we embody our lives. Look how we embody the the truth that we are trying to proclaim. That's that is apologetics in the early church, which is basically we live it, you know. Yeah, I have to I have to check that out. How how so nerdy can we get on this podcast here? It's called Tent Theology, man. I don't know how. Because <laughs> much... I I just wanted I was going to ask you a question about that because I've been reading through, um, kind of reading back over my Nietzsche lately, and how does that square in your mind? This patience is a virtue. I just keep I keep that just ring a bell with you know, this transvaluation of values where Nietzsche would say, you know, that wasn't a good thing that virtue, like patience became a virtue because it, it, it stunts the, the vitality of life. And I've, I've just been wrestling with that because I think with all of this church to toxic masculinity, it, it's, it's this weird paradox for me where I do think Nietzsche's onto something that there's a sickness in squashing vitality and it's coming out in all these sick ways um unhealthy ways and so i'm i'm trying to i'm in the midst i have no answers yet of wrestling with these theological implications of how the church did progress and did turn maybe what were natural virtues and tendencies into vices and vice versa and what was healthy about that and what was manipulative by you know what he might call like the priestly class or whatever well i, um, I don't know how much is natural i don't know if anything's natural there's lots of things right natural. right yeah right i'm, I'm thinking natural all habituated. according to nietzsche's you know way of talking but nietzsche's but yeah. complaint against christianity was that it it was against the will to power mm -hmm. the vitality for him right was will to power or the the kind of principle of the universe, which was essentially something to do with power and, and sort of just putting yeah, your but, stamp on, right down domination in, in some well, way. Well, I I don't I would disagree with that. I think Nietzsche is much more nuanced when he talks about power. I right. think it's a Venn diagram, so I don't think he's not talking about that. Um, but I think he's talking much more than that. It, it is something about you know kind of that saying yes to life idea which is again that for me this there's a there's a venn diagram of nietzsche and kierkegaard here um and so i i just think i get a little nervous when people want to dismiss nietzsche because of the broad brush of will to power uh because i don't think it's about domination it's about cultivation and creation but surely patience is i mean this is where the whole idea of ferment comes in i mean surely like when when you when you're fermenting beer or wine or yogurt or whatever it is, like you are changing from one element to another, and it you can't rush the process, and yet the change is profound, right? Right. right. So that's that's patient ferment. Like it's not it's not something you can you can automate. It's not something you can pay extra money to make it go faster. You can't force it. So there would be this idea that patience is a very powerful, rather than some sort of weak. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm getting at is, is it's all the devil's in the details of the concept of, of patience. Well, think of, yeah, think of like Hannah Arendt, right? And her, have you ever read On Violence? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, her idea is like, I mean, power doesn't grow out of the barrel of a gun. Like as soon as you bring a gun into the, pro into the proceedings, you have lost all the power. That's the clearest definition mm -hmm. or demonstration that you don't have any power and that you're only relying on brute force. If you actually had power, then people would want to do what you want them to do. And people would, right? So like uh, cultivating genuine relationships and friendships and love is far more powerful than waving a gun around. So you can, you can commit violence with a gun. You can kill people with a gun. But what you can't do is have power over people, like real power. 
and that's where I kind of see the Anabaptist patient ferment idea of saying, well, actually, it's they're not saying that, um, well, we don't, we're not going to change the world. This is saying this is how the world changes. If you want real change, it takes a, it takes a longer time, right? Yeah. So I can see that. I'm 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 convinced. I because I, I'm already well because I do see that like shortcut to power idea of domination. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being unfair to Nietzsche, but I do see that the will to power that certainly adolescent minds get when they read Nietzsche, <laughs> whether Nietzsche right. said it or not. But that kind of uh, dominate the universe with your will. That idea is at the root of all the problems in our world, right? So, so somebody who kind of puts a curb on that, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, but maybe you I do. See. I it's not no, it's not that. I think it's again for me what it does is it gets very nuanced very quickly about what we mean that because I think, I think what I what I witness within the evangelical church in America is how quickly that what you just said gets weaponized in this ironic turn of events. So to have a will of your own, to have a self, to stand up for yourself, to have a voice, um, to feel powerful in your own body is a sin. But it's a sin that is called out by those in charge to wield power over other people. Does that make sense? So, so that's where I bristle of like, oh, that's how leaders talk in the evangelical church in America and it, it neuters the power of the people. And I don't like that. Okay. So it's stopping people from acting. Right. From acting and f- from, from listening to their own inner voice and for standing up for the weak and the power. It's like, it's a way to silence people to diminish the will to power, if you will, in, in a certain sense. Okay. Oh, I can see that. The malignant form of I mean, this is this is the sort of uh, dark side of kenosis. This is the way that kenosis gets weaponized against, right? Against this, the uh, exactly, the marginal, right? Exactly. So that's where, that's you know, and again, not to, I'm, I'm we're supposed to talk about Kierkegaard here, but I'm going to go off on Nietzsche. But one thing I like about Nietzsche is, it, it's again, this is one of those overlaps I think of the Venn diagram between the two is this subjectivization, where you know Nietzsche has this passage where he talks about, hey we wouldn't ever fault someone for having a different diet based on their body type. Um, so why do we do that with morality? And I actually like that idea of, you know, a, I mean, a really basic example of this is my wife and I and our relationship to authority growing up, like any Enneagram people, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. So my growth, my spiritual growth throughout my life toward authority has been to learn how to submit. I don't do it well. I don't have a patient ferment when it comes to authority, I have reactivity, I have, you're not going to tell me what to do. So my growth, like in a particular situation within an authoritative relationship, the right thing for me to do is often to learn how to submit. My wife is a six on the Enneagram um, and grew up in a very authoritative church in, in, you know, kind of implicit ways. And her growing edge when it comes to authority is not to do what I would do. It is absolutely to say, you're not the boss of me, like I can trust myself. That's the mature, wise thing for her to do in those situations. So to have a teaching of the church or to have this universalizable moral code where always and forever, you know, Mark, uh, when Jesus says, you know, I didn't come to, uh, to be served, I came to serve um, as a, you know, all this sort of thing, you know, don't lord it over people, but submit yourselves. That's coming from a place of power and privilege in a way that if we universalize it, it does damage to the people who need the opposite advice. And so that's kind of, for me, my soapbox about that. What do you think would it look like if the, the kind of American evangelical person you're thinking of was actually given their own, given the reins back or allowed to, allowed to act on what was in their, their heart and their conscience? What do you think that would look like? I mean, I think we're seeing it currently. I mean, I do think that's... A large part of this phrase deconstruction, which again, not to go on a rabbit trail, I don't love that we're using that term in a way that, you know, Derrida would not love, but it, you know, it is what it is and it's fine. Languages, I, I tried to be the police of language for a long time and realized that was a futile effort. But I think that is what a lot of this uh, notion or concept uh, within progressive evangelicalism right now of deconstruction is it is that. It is finally people getting so wary of being told that they can't listen to their own voice, they can't squelch the voice anymore and they're starting to listen to it. 
And what it's telling them is, you know, what does love look like in our context? And the more I lean into that, the more this other thing feels like control and fear-based and hatred. And I want to move away from that and move toward this thing that intuitively I've known for a long time, but I was told I couldn't listen to it. And that was the voice of, you know, culture swaying me or compromise uh, or just wanting to be sinful. And so I do think that's happening and, and it, it's exciting for me for people to own that. I think our fear that people are going to be selfish and use it to lord it over people, the irony is that's already happening in those spaces. Yes. And, yes. and so that, that for me, I'm like, well, what are we actually afraid of? Because what we should be afraid of is actually already happening. I mean, I, in defense of, again, back to my defense of the patient ferment idea or the kenosis idea, which is if kenosis or like uh, is a, if the refusal to dominate your enemies or to sort of dominate the room with your will, if that is essentially an act of self-control, right? So self-emptying is, a, is an act of like, you have power, use it well, because your power has the opportunity to crowd other people out. So practice self-control. So regardless of how that gets used, I, I admit it gets used really badly, but at the root of it, to tell a self that they need to control themselves is not a disempowering thing. It's, it's assuming that your self is powerful, right? So like saying you are powerful, use your power well. If we started to change the, our language, if we started to think that way, it could be a very different way of running a Yeah, a yeah. I, I mean, I like that idea that you are powerful. You are good. You are powerful. You have internally the resource, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you have the ability to use it well? Um, I like, I mean, I like that. Um, but I think, you know, I also have these psychological notions in my mind of, I think people wield power unhealthily, not from evil impulse, but from broken impulse. Um, and, and so that, you know, I'm thinking of like internal family systems ideas where it's how do we be gentle with these things so that power loosens its grip because power is often a protective defense mechanism not a desire to destroy everything. It's that in my attempt, my, my broken attempt to protect myself, I am destroying other things and other well, people. And this, this deconstruction turn that we're seeing is very much, isn't it? People just finding their own personhood again, really. They're just yeah. carving out a space for identity again, for just their self. Oh, right. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. At least in, you know, at least in the closest relationships I have where people are going through that, that's exactly what it is, is they weren't allowed to do that on their own. It, and it's some, not to be crass, but I think in a lot of ways, what it is, is they were robbed of their adolescence. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, anyway, like it, it's no accident that the deconstruction movement is one that is affecting evangelicals and it's the evangelicalism that's the problem. It's not deconstruction that's the problem. The common thread here, everyone, is uh, is evangelicals. It's not. You don't blame the poor deconstructionist person for finally having some kind of uh, moral revulsion against this system that they've been told. Yeah, and is then I good. think it, you know, there's there's some race parallels here. Not that I'll draw those out, but I think there is then this reaction to uh, people say people who are deconstructing, and they swing that pendulum so far the other way, and then. The establishment is like, oh, that is an overreaction. It's yeah, like, well, no, duh. If you've held back yeah. the dam waters for, you know, a exactly. hundred years, yeah. what do you expect? Opposite and equal reaction. It's just physics. Mark Charles did it. Did you see? I don't know if you follow Mark Charles at all or if you know, listen to his voice and anything. I, yeah, I have, I have some, but I, not a lot. He just he put something out probably on Instagram just uh, today, I think. And it was like, he's just saying like, hey, you guys who are deconstructing, like if you don't, he just said, if pay attention to the colonial, the colonial kind of bias that you've got. You've got to decolonize yourself as well. Otherwise, what you deconstruct into will be different, but not better than what you mm. left. Mm, and, and you do kind of see a lot of like the same kind of, I won't name any names here, but you know, the same kind of uh, people who were evangelical wonder kids with their own books and lines and of CDs and would sell conferences on their base of their name when they deconstruct they're just the same thing they're still going to conferences they're still selling books they're still like they're still deconstruction celebrities 
and you just look at it, you know, it's just the same shit, different color. I mean, it's not really, they haven't deconstructed really. They're still carrying out that kind of, well, what I is think it, that, a market, evangelical right. market kind of. Well, there's the beliefs activity. and then there's the structure of belief. And I, not only that, I think there's many facets. So when we use deconstruction for every individual or group, they're often talking about a particular facet of like, I changed my mind about this set of beliefs. Uh, or it could be, I changed how I believe, or, you know, I could, it, there could be so many other things around what that means for people. There's the social, the psychological. And so I think that's where we end up being maybe ships passing in the night sometimes is like the evangelicals who want to jump on the deconstruction bandwagon are like, yeah, it's fine for you to change some of your beliefs. Um, as long as you are still believe these three things, it's like, yeah, well, that's yeah. not how it works. I have said <laughs> so. this before. Or maybe even to you, but I've said it like I have noticed that the the core of it often amongst people who tell me they're deconstructing is actually more a moral revulsion against right. evangelicals, not an intellectual one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I know loads of people who like they even still believe, you know, in the incarnation and the virgin birth and the resurrection. Like that's not their problem. Their problem is you guys all voted for Trump and you guys are all like. You, you're racist or you're violent you kill your enemies like that's why i'm not an evangelical anymore it's not because of these sets of doctrines that i'm supposed to sign up to it's because you don't seem to believe your own doctrines you don't think jesus is lord i do you don't <laughs> right right yeah no like, and, I, and when i try and act as if jesus is lord then you shut me down and kick me out and squash me yeah no i mean i think that is i would just say for us in our particular segment of the world it, we don't have as much of that because, uh, I mean, we we have the Bible for normal people. So we really are, we attract people, I think, who have the intellectual questions um, okay. and have had very unsatisfactory answers. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. In that. So, yeah. but, but I, I, the the pastors and other people I talk to, they're having much more of what you're talking about as an experience. Uh, and again, I think that's, you know, there's, there's this phenomenon that has many facets. And I don't think that the one is, there's a Venn diagram. Uh, there's an overlap, but they're not the same thing. No, they're not. They're really not. Can we segue seamlessly into Kierkegaard? Because I've just realized what I was talking about was authenticity, the jargon of authenticity, which is like, you guys are saying these things, but how come you're not doing them? And that that disconnect between saying that you do all these things and then not actually doing them is is that kind of psychic space that you get in, which is unlivable for a lot of people, right? especially Enneagram fours who value authenticity above all else. They just can't live in these spaces, which are saying one thing, but doing the other. Right. Well, yeah, it's funny to me again, the more and more I hear stories of what we maybe call, you know, deconstruction, the people who deconstruct are the people who strove to be authentic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They took it the most seriously. Like the, the people who, we're like, oh, no, I always kind of just thought that's weird. I'm, I don't know. Like, it's a kind of part of my life, but it also seems weird. And I say I say I believe it, but I don't really believe it. Like, those people are doing fine. Like, they're yeah. just kind of skating right along. <laughs> yeah. They can live with the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, the authenticity is you – know, and maybe, again, not, we're just going to keep going here, but I have a question for you. Mm. Uh how do you square? Cause I actually wrestle with this in the book a little bit and I didn't have a great answer. I kind of left it. You know, I struggle with this authenticity idea. What's the guardrails for you around authenticity? Because I often joke and say, so it's okay if you're an authentic asshole, it's sort of like, what are the moral guardrails of authenticity? I think it's an important question in this day and age where again, we're swinging the pendulum toward authenticity, which I think is actually a fantastic move. But I, I wonder sometimes it's like, is it just as long as you're living your true self, that's well, no. Okay, so this if all right. So if earlier speak, if earlier on I was giving the kind of um, straw man Nietzsche when it comes to power, right? This the, what you've just said is the straw man Kierkegaard when it comes to authenticity, right? So, right, right. Yeah. And this would be the difference between subjectivity and subjectivism. Mm-hmm. So subjectivism is you generate truth from within yourself. So, so to be an authentic person means to just look inside yourself and be the you you want to be or you know, live the thing that you're feeling at the moment, live that to your fullest and now you're authentic. That's subjectivism. 
But of course, when Kierkegaard is talking about truth is subjectivity, he means truth. First of all, he he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the incarnation when he talks right. about truth, right? Mm-hmm. So he's saying the truth of the incarnation. That, and, and for him, the, the central point around which the whole cosmos turns, all of reality turns, is the finite becoming, inf- or the infinite becoming finite. Right. Mm-hmm. The God becoming a man. And he's like, you can know that, you can only know that truth by knowing that truth as a person. Because that's the whole point. It was God became a person. And so truth is subjectivity. Truth is a subject, not an object. So if you are going to know the truth of the incarnation, then you also have to know it as a person. You have to, it's in that kind of sense of like, the cliche would be the relationship idea, which is you can't know uh, the truth. I can't know the truth of my relationship with Jared Bias unless I'm actually in a relationship with Jared Bias, right? Right. That's good. Yep. Yeah. And so that's yeah. so. So that's the context for when Kierkegaard says truth is subjectivity. He uh, he's basically saying like uh, you're not going to know the incarnation unless you first of all know the incarnation as a person, is a person, and you know the incarnation as a person. So then, so then tie that concept to what you just said uh, to authenticity. How do those relate? Okay, so now, if the incarnation is the most important event in the history of events happening, then what Jesus says and does is the thing that you have to align your life to, right? That's truth. Mm-hmm. So if you say Jesus is Lord, but then you act as if your nation is Lord or your money is Lord, then you are living in a state of unauthentic, like you're, you're, you're disconnected. It's a state of untruth, he calls it. It's not authentic because you're not aligned with the principle of creation. You're not, you know, as our friend President Obama would say, <laughs> you're not in, you know, in, in the grain of the universe, right? So, so there's this kind of idea that you're living in a disconnected world when you, when you and, and it's especially bad. Like it's bad for anybody who isn't living according to the incarnation or the way of Jesus, but it's especially bad for Christians because they profess one thing and then do the other. So on top of all the other sins, they're now adding blasphemy, right? Yeah, so that's so 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 for him, I think authenticity is a very moral position. It's an ethical position to do with how you live your life. So truth for him means how you live your life. It doesn't mean what dogma boxes you check. How you live your life is intimately connected to to are you being conformed to the pattern of Jesus Christ, basically. So there's the guardrails. So it's not at all like look inside your heart and whatever you find, then go follow. You know, he's not so saying live your dream or follow your own freedom or anything like that. He's saying, all right, here's Jesus. How are you doing it? <laughs> so, and, and yeah, and I get that. I think my, as a, as a Christian, I like that. As maybe someone within the philosophical tradition, my challenge to that is it feels like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Well, he's writing so, as a Christian to Christian. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I'm just channeling, sorry. And I'm, I'm saying all this, of course, I'm a little bit Kierkegaardian, like I'm, I'm bringing in the pseudonymous, you know, audience here. I'm like channeling all of the people that I've had conversations with around this. It, it's a confusing concept for, I think, the average person to say, it, it feels a little bit like the bait and switch of evangelicalism around deconstruction. Like you can deconstruct, but you can't do it around these three things. And it sounds like you can be authentic, but it can't transgress the truth that is Jesus Christ. And, and I think for the average person, those two statements are too, they're not uh, fleshed out enough to not be triggering on both sides. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. But I mean, to paraphrase Kierkegaard, he's like, I can't prove it. I'm not trying to prove anything. I can't prove right. that the incarnation happened. But if the incarnation, if something like the incarnation actually happened, then that event is the most important event in the history of the world. Like everything revolves around that event, but I can't prove it. I'm not trying to demonstrate its its re- reasonableness or anything like that. I'm just saying it's just an if then proposition. Like if this actually happened, then this is what follows, right? Well, I think I'm. I think what I'm I'm, I'm uh, palpating here and trying to get to is it just stuck. It just popped into my head. You know, I like Hubert Dreyfus. I don't know if you read. You know, one of the things that was super fascinating to me about Kierkegaard is uh, he can be read like as an evangelical. Or he can be read as like an atheist. Um, 
he like it's just there's no end to these ambiguous interpretations of Kierkegaard. But Hubert Dreyfus, you know, in his non-religious interpretation of Kierkegaard, talks a lot about this unconditional commitment, sort of the unconditional. Of course, he's probably thinking Regina in in Kierkegaard's life, but but I like that idea. Again, I, I feel like I walk this balance of like, yeah, as a Christian, I'm fully on board with what Kierkegaard says. But I also think Kierkegaard's relevant to people who aren't Christians. I think there's a lot of value in extrapolating that to this idea of the unconditional commitment, because it's still a subjectivity, not a subjectivism, because you're committing yourself to this objective reality, but you're doing so with the gusto of the subjective. I don't know what you think about that. I'm just I'm just processing out loud. And, and uh, you know, this is not a normally on podcasts. I have coherent thoughts <laughs> look there is a relevant there is value but as long as we are honest with ourselves and we recognize that soren was writing as some sort of christian for christians yeah. about christians within christendom so yeah right let's right. first admit that yeah uh, and then uh, and then we can say well given that uh, so first of all i would just say it's not an invalid reading of Kierkegaard to read him as a christian because that Oh within no! The, within no, the I, world of Kierkegaard you, studies, you're the in a minority. The burden of proof is on, uh, Hubert, know. you know, Dreyfus. Yeah, in that exactly. One. But that's <laughs> for sure. But that happened within Kierkegaard studies. You, you're forever having to apologize for treating him like it's a Christian. So, it's so, it's so funny because he's so Christian. Like, it's just a fundamentally <laughs> sort of dishonest starting position. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that all being said, yes, of course, I think there are some relevances, and I wonder whether they're to do with this idea of. The Abraham idea, which would be that your identity, that the culture that you were born into is not your full source of identity, that there is something about you that is more important than just being a member of the group that you were born mm -hmm. into, right? And that your morality, that morality is relative, morality changes according to society, according to history. And that your being a moral member of society is not the same as you being plugged into some timeless truth. And, and I feel like that's quite a useful thing to say to people. Like that's where, for example, well, Hannah Arendt and, and others who were not Christian, but who were fighting against Nazi Germany, for example, they found Kierkegaard really useful because he was giving them language to stand apart from a culture that you were born into and yet and everyone is shouting with one voice and you're just standing there going i don't think this is true uh what do i do and i feel like kierkegaard helped a lot of people in that yeah yeah i also think of uh simone de beauvoir's ethics of ambiguity yeah. where i was yeah. definitely getting some kierkegaard vibes and also like african-americans in uh, uh like richard wright or i mean cornell west i don't know cornell is a christian but there's quite a lot of existential movement amongst African-American black liberation movements, which are drawing from Kierkegaard, actually. Right, right. Yeah, which feels pretty authentic to kind of more of an embodied spirituality. And and, and, and that would have to do with uh, with identity that's not just bequeathed to you, like identity that, right, that right. is not grounded on just being a good pliant citizen. Now, of course, Kierkegaard's basing that on the incarnation when it really comes down to it, because he's saying, well, look, uh, followers of Jesus will act as a grit, uh, a spanner in the works, we'd say in England, you know, grit in the wheels. Like the follower of Jesus isn't a good citizen. They're, they are attacked by society. So I suppose you could secularize that if you wanted to, and you could just say, look, society is always wrong. I guess Kierkegaard would say like the, um, that, that great phrase he has about how truth is always corrective. So where, whenever you find a group of people shouting in one voice about any subject, you could be absolutely sure that they're missing something and they don't have the whole truth. So the real truth is always going to be reminding the majority that they've forgotten something. You know, but he, I, I, I feel like I'm being the gadfly in this whole conversation, but I just so much nuance about like, I just feel like I have family members and friends in conservative evangelicalism that's exactly the line of thinking for all their conspiracy theory stuff is like, yeah, look at the, the masses. They're all like into vaccines and stuff. Like, are you just going to be a, a part of the crowd? Like I could see them quoting. Yeah, but then the truth of the truth of the kind of is, is that the prophet is the person who's speaking to the prophet is not welcome in his hometown. The true prophet is always yeah. speaking to his own people. There you go. I like so that. Yep, the yep. QAnon prophet 
to be an authentic prophet within the conservative Republican world, you'd have to stand up in front of your own friends and say, you yes. know what, Trump isn't actually that good, or he's not the final word, or QAnon uh -huh. doesn't have all the answers. And then you'd get booed. Your own hometown would boo you. Yeah, and that right. feels super Kierkegaardian because he had this, it just seems like he had this personality trait that he both hated that and reveled in it. Right, so, so the truth, so for Kierkegaard, he's like laser focused, not on the other guys, but on my team. Like, what is my team saying right now? Uh, not the other guys. And, and, if, and if I was a you know, super progressive liberal and I'm just surrounding myself by super progressive liberal friends, well, then to be a prophet in that environment would be to go, hey, you know what? Like, conservatives aren't all monsters or uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, the, the government isn't always. I want to know. I want to hear right. you say more of these. I want you to just out yourself here as a prophet to your own tribe no, right you, now. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. any group, like, I mean, if you want to talk about vaccines or something, it's like, you know, I mean, any group that just shouts loudly and says there's no problems at all with government mandated uh, uh, close part, cl close cooperation with uh, with big pharma, no problems at all, and you're a complete moron for even mentioning it. You know, it's kind of like, well, hang on, hang on. Like history doesn't tell us that these companies and these governments have always worked with our best interests at heart. So we're not a complete raving lunatic to to wonder about that, right? Right. Yeah. But like yeah. the prophet then is the is the person who's saying that to his own crowd. It's not the guy who's shouting um, against his enemies. It's the guy who's shouting against his friends. Right. That's the true prophet. That's right. Weird. Also, also known as be, the asshole of every friend group. Right. He'll be shat on. He'll be expelled. He'll, <laughs> he won't be welcome in his hometown. Right. That's almost the definition yep. of a true prophet. Right. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> if a true prophet is not welcome in his hometown, then a false prophet is welcome in his hometown. Right. Right? No, that's good. I like that. I like that. I so like anyway, that. I can see Kierkegaard there coming in as a, as a kind of a, 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 a truth is always a corrective. And if you find yourself getting all excited and righteous, righteously pure about that, then you need to shine that into your own life. You're not allowed to just keep pointing to the other guy. My intention is not to like secularize Kierkegaard. I think it's, I'm really wrestling lately with how do you I've been acutely aware of the Western mindset lately and wondering like, how do you talk? The words that I use are going to be automatically translated into a certain paradigmatic framework. Oh, I know. And then I'm like, but that's not what I mean, but there isn't a language to talk about what I mean. And so, you know, even in the book, I tried to talk about the difficulty of being Christian and of course, you know, quoting some Kierkegaard in there and I'm just like, yeah, be becoming a Christian is the most important thing. And it's, ugh, it just gets so messy because I, I feel oh, like I, I am, I still have like one foot in each world. And so I get these glimpses of like, no, that's what I mean. And then 10 seconds later, I'm like, wait, what did I mean by that? Because I could see how that would get twisted in this other paradigm. As and well. also you've already done this to me a few times now. You're like, yeah, but I know how that would play. You <laughs> right. said that to this group, this is how they'd hear it. And so you're, you're constantly yes. thinking that way. You're like 10 steps ahead. You're thinking, well, I know you can say it, but I also know that those same words are going to be exactly. And I like just, a I'm, I'm a little obsessed. Yeah, I'm a little obsessed with those little nuances of how can I say it in a way that that people can hear it differently. And it's it's a real challenge. Well, this is why you need to years. become an Anabaptist and read Alan Kreider, and he says stops talking. Now, well, you you do know I am Anabaptist, right? Right. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. That's great. But stop yeah, I'm talking. a member of a Mennonite church. Yeah, like so. that. That that is a solution. Like. In a world of vibrating noise, what if one of your the right response to that world is to not participate in it? Like, what if that is how we deal with vibrating angry noise? We just mm. don't add to it. Right, right. Maybe stopping yeah. talking isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to somebody, right? Well, and, you know, that has been, you know, I would think in, with the pandemic and everything, I think my shift has been, my my new commitment to myself has been, Whatever energy I was going to use to respond to someone in a critical way, I think of it almost like a bank account. Like rather than this being the withdrawal, I'm going to save that money and I'm going to deposit it in a positive way. Um, because I've started seeing the energy, like I'm spending energy being against things. I don't want to have energy go against things. So how do I, I just 
keep my mouth shut when I see, I, I, sometimes I literally do this where I will be on Facebook, I'll start to type a response to someone, I'll delete it immediately, and I'll use that time to think about something that I can do that furthers what I actually believe in, not what I believe against. And that's been a huge shift for me, which helps, it's helped me feel tremendously unstuck because just fighting against things, I feel like I'm just contributing at that level of the register of the negative rather than figuring out how to just be, bring love and kindness and beauty into the world and, you know, liberation. I'd rather just not engage. Like I'm, I have limited resources. So why would I take six minutes doing that when I could take six minutes and find a congressman to be in touch with or jump on this other thing? You've heard about that famous story about the crappy citizen. Did you read that essay? It came out years ago. No, I don't think I did. About four years ago, it, right at the beginning of the Trump era. And, and a guy, I think he was an Anabaptist, actually, a kind of a Wendell Berry type. He just said, you know what? I'm going to be a bad citizen. I'm not going to be informed. News just wants to get me, make me mad. Even the side that I like, even the voices that I trust, they basically just want to make me mad about the other, t- the other side. Um, I can't do anything about it. So I'm just not going to be informed. I'm just going to not follow the news. Uh, but what I will do instead is I have a local, I think he had a lake, he had a local lake that was really, had been poisoned or it was dirty. And he said, I'm just going to make, I'm going to focus on fixing my lake and I'm providing good water for the right, for my neighbors. <laughs> and that's what he did. He just, he just deliberately became a crappy citizen and became local instead. And I find there's something kind of admirable about that, right? Yeah, because I think for me, it's, it's funny because it's a bit of a play on words because he wasn't opting out of politics. He was exactly. opting in to a deeper form of politics. Exactly. What would you say? So a friend of mine even texted me just recently and, you know, some, some Hillsong church theologians had published some awful thing on Instagram and you know, all warmongering and stuff. And, and my friend who was, who's very kind of hurt by all this and just incensed by it. He's like, what do I do? Like, what do I do with that? What do I do when I see something that I know is affecting people I love? What do I do with that? What would you say to my friend? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that not to. This is a little Kierkegaardian in my own way. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I, I have a tendency of taking all these thinkers and then just making them say what I want them to say. But um, <laughs> yeah, like the true Enneagram Eight. Um, I looked down no, into a well and I saw my own face peering exactly. out. <laughs> uh, but I think for me, what I often tell people in that situation, and this sounds maybe a little, you know, virtue ethicsy, is I I'll just say what I what I've done is. I often will take a minute to reflect on who I want to be in the world. What kind of person do I want to be in the world? Not think I am, but actually be in the world. Like if I were to ask the people closest to me who I am and what I'm about, what would they say? And so in that moment, I, I want to reflect on that question. And that helps me not be reactive. And then to say, again, for me, my answer to that question has come to the last few years I want to be a person who brings love and kindness, beauty and justice into the world. Is this is is reacting against this going to bring more of that? I don't think it is. I don't know. It's playing by the rules of the game. Rules are already set by the parameters of the original article. And so to engage in it is already, in a sense, to sacrifice something that I'm not actually willing to sacrifice anymore. I think going back to the idea of the, the prophet is not welcome in their hometown is I've gotten pushback from that because I think a lot of people have bought into activism is reactivism. And I, I just don't, I just don't agree. And, and maybe I'm wrong and I'm, I'm open to the conversation and continuing to learn and grow. But for now, that's not the space I'm in. I mean, I certainly found why I had to come off Facebook, for example, was just, I was always being, uh, my agenda was always being hijacked by somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even, even though they were, friends or people that I like, they might've even been things I agreed with, but it was always like somebody else's agenda. Like, look at this, have an opinion about this. You should react to this. And, and even if the news story was something that I agreed with or that I found interesting, I still was finding my day just constantly being diverted. My agenda was constantly being dictated by somebody else's view of what I should be paying attention to. And I just found it like morally and psychologically tiring, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a good word for it. Tiring. I just was exhausted by it. It was like a gumball machine. and They, they pressed the button too many times. And there's no gumballs left. <laughs> yep. And, and, and I, so for me, 
to come off Facebook, for example, and then to also just avoid talking about serious things on on other forms of social media is to get some of my authenticity back. It's to get some of my own agency back, you know? Mm, yeah. 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 Wow. Hey, uh, Jared, where can people go? I'm, I've loved talking to you. I think we just got to do this again, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the time and I'm aware that I've taken up the allotted time that I, I asked you to give. Uh, please, can you come back again and we keep talking one day? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. I absolutely great. love this. Um, I, I, so I often uh, I am talking to people who are, have a book that they're, they've just written or that they're promoting and I love doing that and I love reading their books, but also sometimes it's fun just to get on the mic and talk with somebody i know i felt a little trepidation of like can we go here i don't i don't know because normally yeah we gotta kind of stay on topic here so i appreciate that this is oh, actually there was refreshing no, no topic to get on. i've i've loved it too but that being said what's your book where's your book where can people go to get the the latest of the yeah so it's uh called love matters more how fighting yeah. to be right keeps us from loving like jesus you can grab it anywhere that you get books i tend to tell people to go to bookshop.org uh here in the states just because they support local bookstores and Brilliant. but yeah you can get it anywhere that the books are sold well i hope that people do and of course the bible for normal people is the podcast you do with pns which is a juggernaut of good sense in a mm. world that's lost its tiny mind <laughs> oh, you can have man. that one I, for free I love it. I love it. So can we, we, that can be the blurb. You just, yeah. you know, you gave us a gift there. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. There's my career highlight. I've given a blurb to Darren Bias. Thank you so much, friend. It's really nice to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.